You're listening to WJMSRadio.com, where radio is reimagined. The Fired Up Show starts right now. And welcome, welcome. Well, it's Monday. That means it's Fired Up right here on WJMS Radio. This is Steve. I host the show each week as we look at the political machine and all of the goings-on. And, oh my goodness, it's It's coming. It's coming. Can you hear it? Can you feel it? We are 15 days away from the 2020 presidential election day. Uh, Although active voting has actually been in effect for some time now, uh, let's let's do some numbers. Uh, As always, we start off with our COVID update. Uh, Currently in the United States, we are looking at 8.14 million uh, identified cases of COVID-19 and 220,000 deaths have been reported uh, from the pandemic. And, you know, as always, we we keep these numbers, you know, in in front of mind. Um, You know, 8 million people, it's hard to put your head around. Uh, It's it's hard to to conceptualize that, along with uh, 220,000 people who have, have perished from the disease. Uh, and our tendency can be to just kind of, you know, eyes glaze over with, with numbers that get that high. Um, but we, we need to keep focused on the fact that this pandemic continues to uh, ravage our country. Uh, it's no longer confined to a few isolated hotspots. Uh, it is pretty much everywhere. Uh, as you look at the news and see the reporting and they show the the maps uh, of the states and how they're faring. Um, we are back on an upswing. You know, they're they're talking like this is approaching a a third wave of the disease. I I would argue that we are still kind of riding the effect of the first wave. Um, but you know, I I leave those arguments to the more knowledgeable scientific and medical professionals out there. Uh, we, on the other hand, you know, need to stay vigilant, stay focused on what we need to do as, as individuals, as families, as communities, as states, and as a nation to you know, help stop the progression of the disease and you know, control the spread of infection in our, in our communities. Um, so, you know, that, that's one aspect of what's going on out there. And as I said, I always start off the show with an update uh, so that we don't forget or become numb or, or lackadaisical to the impact that this virus is having in our country. Uh, there's another number that's out there. Um, and that number is 26 million. And that is the number of people who have already cast ballots in the presidential election due either to early in-person voting or through the mail-in ballot mechanisms that are out there. Uh, That's about 20% of the anticipated uh, voting population in this election cycle. Uh, And that number is, is blowing a hole in all records for early voting uh, just about everywhere that it's occurring. So kudos to you out there. If, if you have, have listened to all the advisories about early voting, 
and and have gotten your ballot in either voting in person or you know through the mail or drop off um, but for the rest of us you know we we still need to maintain our commitment to have our plan to get out and vote on this November 3rd uh, as I said 15 days away um, we are we are going to see some form of dramatic change uh, in this country you know either the Republican incumbents will you know remain in office uh, particularly uh, when we speak about the presidency or there will be a new president and vice president elected uh, and there will be you know some changes that happen in the Senate and House uh, that's pretty much a given how those changes play out uh, remains to be seen uh, but in any event don't let the high numbers of early voters get you into the thinking that well you know uh, everybody else is voting I don't need to go etc just keep in mind that the current president was elected to office due to an electoral college victory that was uh, enabled by a little bit more than 75,000 votes nationally. So, you know, out of the hundreds of millions of votes cast, 75,000 uh, were, were the deciding votes. So every vote counts, your vote counts, get out there and vote and make sure that you get that done. Uh, but it is an impressive number. 20% of the electorate, uh, 26 million uh, early ballots have been cast. Uh, there isn't a whole lot of conclusive evidence as to whether or not, you know, one party is, is uh, getting a higher percentage than the other. And that's simply due to the fact that not all states designate, you know, which party the ballots are coming from. Some of them are, you know, truly generic on the outside and you have no way of knowing whether they are democratic or republican or even independent ballots so we will see what happens on november 3rd and you know as i've said before on the show um this is not going to be decided you know on the night of november 3rd uh simply because there are so many you know ballots to be counted that weren't delivered in person uh, you know, were, were mail-in ballots, absentee ballots, etc. So it is probably going to be, you know, a, a week, 10 days before we get a final result of the election. And, you know, of course, that has spurred all kinds of uh, commentary um, on both sides of the political spectrum about what will happen, you know, given the, the results of the election. You know, of, of course, we've heard in the news uh, the reports that the current president uh, may not accept the result of the ballot, and particularly if, if he is unsuccessful. And, you know, there are already court cases, you know, in, in the works, and we can anticipate more of those. So, you know, we're, we're going to have a process to go through in order to get to a final determination. Hopefully everything will work out, work through smoothly, and you know we will be able to you know celebrate uh, the the peaceful transition of power, uh, one way or the other, uh, shortly after the November third uh, election day. So it's been a, a busy political week uh, since our last show uh, last week on Monday, and you know a couple of the 
the overarching stories of the week were the uh, the hearings in the Judiciary Committee on the the confirmation of the nomination of Judge Amy Coney Barrett uh, to fill the Supreme Court seat vacated uh, by the passing of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, a little bit less than a month ago now. And, you know, that has spurred, you know, controversy on several different levels, not the least of which is, you know, an ongoing argument um, from the Democratic side that the Republicans have you know, exposed their hypocrisy in pushing through this nomination, uh, which would provide President Trump with a third uh, Supreme Court justice uh, during his first term. And the, the Democrats are complaining that you know, the Republicans reneged on their promise made in 2016 when President Barack Obama appointed Judge Merrick Garland to, uh, to a uh, vacant post on the Supreme Court and the Republican-led Senate uh, delayed, decided not to hear or decided not to pursue the nomination process for just Judge Garland, uh, stating that you know, it was too close to the election and the uh, American people need to weigh in, so the judge uh, position should be filled by the next president, whoever that may be. And you know, Mitch McConnell uh, went on the record with that. And uh, in, in fact, we're going to play uh, a clip in in a second uh, that illustrates exactly how uh, Mitch McConnell reversed himself uh, over the course of time you know, given the change in the political landscape from when, you know, President Obama made his appointment to when President Trump has made his. So the, the clip I'm about to play is uh, two part. The first part is Mitch McConnell in 2016 uh, responding to the, uh, the proposal of Judge Garland to the bench by President Obama and uh, his response as to what the Republican-controlled Senate would do with that nomination. And then the second part you'll hear is Mitch McConnell again, but this time it is uh, in uh, 2019 when a reporter asked the question about the possibility of a vacancy on the court and whether or not uh, the Senate would take up that vacancy. So without ado without further ado let me let me play the clip and then we'll come back on the other side and talk about it a little further decision the senate announced weeks ago remains about a principle and not a person about a principle and not a person the senate will appropriately revisit the matter when it considers the qualifications of the nominee the next president nominates whoever that might be. Uh, we'd fill it. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, the reason I started with the judges, as important as all these other things are that we're talking about, I mean, if you want to have a long-lasting positive impact on the country, everything else changes. 
So again, uh, with apologies for the audio quality, uh, particularly in the second half of the clip, um, you know, the, the underlying issue here is uh, Mitch McConnell and, and other notable Republicans uh, said in 2016 that, you know, they did not want to, you know, produce a Supreme Court nominee or elevate a Supreme Court justice uh, within the fourth year of the sitting president's term, which followed, you know, some some precedent from, you know, years past and so forth. Yet, once the Republicans took over control of the White House, uh, apparently that rule went out the window and the Republicans went forward. Uh, they nominated uh, Judge Amy Coney Barrett uh, to uh, be the next uh, Supreme Court justice. Um, and, you know, you can you can argue about her record and her conservative uh, leaning and whatever. Uh, really, I, I think the the part that doesn't carry the weight that it should is, you know, essentially our elected officials, you know, in this case, the, the Republicans, um, basically threw their own rule out the window uh, because it was convenient for them to do so. And, you know, this is a point that the Democrats have raised numerous times and continues to be a bone of contention. Uh, but it also is something that can lead to a, a very damaging precedent going forward in that, you know, this, this game of brinksmanship, this, this game of chicken that's being played between the two parties with regard to policies and, and laws uh, on the docket for our country uh, only tends to exacerbate the strong divides that we find our country in, you know, in, in this current time period. Um, I have another clip coming up where, you know, it, it is uh, Rhode Island Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, uh, who is a member of the Senate Judiciary Committee and, you know, participating in the hearings on Judge Barrett and her nomination to the Supreme Court. And, you know, and while I didn't watch all 30 hours of the of the testimony, I did watch, you know, quite a bit of it. And, you know, as is typical, you know, as we've seen in, you know, nominations past, you know, both in this administration and in prior administrations, uh, the possibility of getting a straight, direct, you know, possibly yes, no answer to a question uh, doesn't seem to exist uh, anywhere in national politics. Um, you know, it, it, it is, you know, it, it's a shame. And it, it, it actually, in, in talking with someone about it, you know, the, the comment came up about, wish we had a way where we could actually just get them to give, you know, a yes, no, up, down, you know, binary answer. And I, I replied, yeah, it would be great if, you know, Wonder Woman's magic lasso that compels, you know, honest answers to questions, if that was a real thing, you know, that we could subject them all to Wonder Woman's magic lasso. Uh, but anyway, I, I digress. Um, so let me play the second clip. And this one, as I said, is uh, 
Senator Sheldon Whitehouse. He is a Democrat from Rhode Island, and he's a member of the Senate Judiciary Committee. And he's addressing this very issue, this brinksmanship, this, you know, battle back and forth as we go, you know, from administration to administration or from Congress to Congress uh, in in our public policy discussions. So here is here is Senator Whitehouse uh, on that. I do want to suggest to colleagues that the rule of because we can which is the rule that is being applied today, is one that leads away from a lot of the traditions and comedies and values that the Senate has long embodied. There are Republican members on this committee of whom I am very fond. But don't think that when you have established the rule of because we can, that should the shoe be on the other foot, you will have any credibility to come to us and say, yeah, I know you can do that, but you shouldn't because of X, Y, or Z. Your credibility to make that argument at any time in the future will die in this room and on that Senate floor if you continue to proceed in this way. I hope that that is not the case. But please don't think that there are two separate rules. That when there is Republican majority, the rule is because we can. And when there is a Democrat majority, the rule is, oh, no, you can't do it that way. So we get, you know, two two sides of, you know, the the game being played. And I I mean that when I'm saying the game being played. Uh, We've got. You know, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell uh, playing a game of with my ball, my bat, my rules and, you know, changing directions at his whim uh, because it suits him to do so. And then we have Democratic Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, who is uh, expressing what is probably a widely held but not often said uh, thinking on the side of Democrats, both in the House and Senate, that, you know, okay, but just remember, you know, sauce for the goose, sauce for the gander, that, you know, if, if we take over with the election, we can change the rules too, and you can't come back and say, well, no, you can't do it that way. Uh, that argument will hold no credibility. Um, That is part of the problem that we have with our elected leaders uh, in the current time frame. And, you know, it 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 may seem like, you know, we're we're often picking, you know, on this show that we're often picking on the Republicans. But that is is primarily due that they are simply they are the the party in power. They hold two thirds of the seats of government. Uh, in our country. So obviously, whatever is going on, they own it. And therefore, we're going to be discussing it uh, uh, with them and about them, you know, for good or for bad. Um, but once, you know, a, a transition occurs, you know, should the Democrats win the day? Uh, should they, you know, take over the Senate, retain control of the House and even gain the presidency? That doesn't mean that, you know, criticism is going to go away because, you know, the the other team has taken the field 
And, you know, the team that's been playing offense for the last four years now gets to play defense for four years. Um, you know, that is the, the nature of the beast. However, you know, it, it doesn't have to be that way. And, and for those of you who, you know, support Republican politics, um, you have to take a hard look in the political mirror and reflect on, you know, the, the things that the Republicans have done with their power while they have been in control, um, you know, in, in control of the White House and the Senate in the last four years and in control of the Senate itself for nearly a decade. And ask yourself, does that align with what I really believe this country is about? And I, I'm not talking, you know, ideology. I, I'm not talking, you know, necessarily about all of the, the hot button issues that are, are going on and that we see in the news every day. But is America a country of my ball, my bat, my rules? Or are we a country that prides itself on a, a leadership to the common good of all people? And, you know, for, for you, for those of you who are of the younger generations who haven't seen, you know, the, the history of American politics, you know, as long as, you know, for example, I have, um, you, you, you don't have a point of reference. But there was a time that, you know, Republicans and Democrats, despite their ideological differences, uh, came together when it you know, was in the best interest of the majority of people, the ordinary folk, the common people of the United States. They came together and figured out ways to, to make it work. Um, you know, historically, you, know, you can go back and research um, the, the, the interactions between Ronald Reagan, uh, who was president of the United States, and Thomas Tip O'Neill, who was Speaker of the House of Representatives, two diametrically opposed political ideologies, yet in private, behind the scenes, they used a friendship to help work through solutions to problems. You know, um, look at reports about uh, Justice Ginsburg and you know the, the late Justice Ginsburg and the late Justice Scalia, 180 degree different from from a political and ideological standpoint. Yet they were best friends because they found common ground and were able to use that to to work help them work through the issues of the day. We don't have a similar mechanism in in this time period. Um, the, the idea that, you know, Donald Trump and Nancy Pelosi would, you know, skip out the back and, and go down the street to, to have a beer or a glass of wine and, you know, talk person to person, that, that, that doesn't apply. We don't see it. Uh, now, granted, there are senators and congresspeople who have great friendships, you know, outside of the political arena uh, with members from across the aisle. That, I'm not saying that doesn't exist. But what I'm saying is there is an overriding um, 
animus that seems to come into play when they step into that chamber that at the end of the day uh, dramatically impacts how the, the common person, how the ordinary people, how the vast majority of working class Americans, how they get through you know, day to day, how they survive. Um, you know, the, the best example I can offer, and you know, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about this as well on, on the other side of our break, is the, the response to the coronavirus. Now, initially, you know, there seemed to be a coalition of working together to find solutions. You know, stimulus payments went out, uh, supplemental unemployment payments went out, something changed, and now they're at an impasse and can't seem to resolve the difference um, between, you know, the, the Democratic proposal for uh, aid for, for the stimulus and coronavirus and the Republican proposal. Um, meanwhile, the American people are left hanging in the lurch. So, you know, let's, let's take our break here. You're listening to Fire It Up right here on WJMS Radio. This is Steve. We'll come back after the break and pick up this conversation. So stay tuned. We'll see you right after the break. Well, this is not a miracle, for this is 
And we're back. Uh, welcome back to Fired Up right here on WJMS Radio. And uh, as the song says, you know, we're in a situation that is not America. This is not who we are. We are, as, as uh, many have said, better than this. Uh, we left off in the first segment talking about the, the differences that exist between the Democratic and Republican proposals on aid for the American people uh, under the, the conditions we find ourselves with the COVID-19 pandemic. And, you know, it, it is un- unfortunate um, beyond just the tragedy of the, the illness and the death that has been associated with it. It is unfortunate because throughout our history, we are a country, we've had differences. We've had, you know, political differences and opinion differences and, and all of these things. But yet when a common crisis has, uh, has approached, America has always come together. And, you know, while we see yeoman efforts and, you know, heaps of praise, kudos, thank yous, and God bless yous to all the first responders out there who have been battling uh, to to take care of us through this pandemic for now 10 months. You know, we have not seen that galvanizing leadership, whether it's from, you know, the Democrats uh, or the Republicans you know, or the White House um, that we, frankly, as Americans, we're used to seeing. You, you, you need only look back to, you know, George W. Bush uh, when, when he was president. He had been in office for nine months when, you know, 9-11 occurred. And, you know, at the time, his administration and, and his presidency was heading into some rocky seas in that, like now, there were some deep political divides on direction of the country and how we, how we address issues that faced us at that time. But when those two buildings fell and the Pentagon was, um, was damaged and those 93 people in Pennsylvania heroically sacrificed their lives to keep you know from making that tragedy even worse um, the American people rallied around leadership that was shown by a president who you know the week before was arguably the 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 victim of many many segments of late night humor on the talk shows and and all of that suddenly in the face of this national tragedy uh all of that was put aside everybody began to pull in the same direction unfortunately at least in 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 my opinion we don't see that right now we have a a situation in this country with this pandemic and and by extension in the world uh that is unprecedented you know more people have died in this pandemic than all of the soldiers and military personnel that have died in every war since world war ii and yet you know 
where is the pulling together by our leadership at the top? You know, this this pandemic is being exploited for, you know, call it selfish political gain, whatever you want to call it. But there has been almost a resistance to the natural tendency for this country, America, to pull together in the face of this national tragedy. And, you know, that is something that each of us need to, you know, address with our elected officials, uh, whether you're a Democrat or Republican. You know, it, it is unconscionable that people are facing eviction, uh, are struggling to put food on the table, uh, that, you know, 20 million people uh, have been out of work for months, and that we can't get our government to be unified to come to our rescue, to come to our aid, to help. They're more, it seems, entangled in brinksmanship and one-upsmanship and I'm not going to meet you that, ha that halfway and I'm not going to meet you that halfway back and forth and back and forth. Meanwhile, Americans, everyday Americans are hurting. And, you know, I, I think whoever takes over the leadership next year, number one is they have got to heal this nation. So, I mean, if the, the current administration gets a second bite at the apple, uh, you guys need to make sure that you're telling them that they need to change their ways, that they need to put the American people first. If the new administration comes in, if the Democrats win and take over, that's got to be job one, is to heal this country, you know, to, to get us back to being one country united. This is not the Republican states of America and the Democrat states of America. You know, as Barack Obama said, you know, in, in, in 2000, this is the United States of America. And we're better than this. So, you know, something, something as I've said, you know, before, you know, in our call to action, we need to be in communication with our elected officials all the way up and down the line. Uh, more so and more importantly, now in election season, because trust and believe they're paying attention right now. But we can't let them off that hook. Once, you know, the dust has settled, whenever it settles from, you know, Election Day 2020, we need to make sure that we are maintaining that communication, that link, that accountability demand with our elected officials, everyone from your mayor all the way up to the president. So, you know, call to action, obviously, get out and vote. Call to action two is once you vote, stay in communication with your elected officials. Let them know who you are, where you are, and what you think, what your opinions are, what your wants are. Remember, they work for us, not the other way around. We elect them to represent us. And, you know, I, I'd, I'd be remiss if I didn't make mention of, you know, something that just makes this situation worse. And that is, you know, this 
all of a sudden, you know, out front, in your face, highly visible, however you want to put it. We have, you know, situations where um, militant groups have been thwarted in a plan to kidnap and possibly kill a sitting governor uh, of one of the states in this country, Michigan in particular, um, simply because uh, this governor, Governor Whitmer, has been vocal in her criticism uh, of the president and has uh, taken it upon herself uh, due to lack of leadership from the top to you know, implement um, lockdowns and other responses to the burgeoning pandemic in her state, which is what she is supposed to do as governor. And so, you know, a, a, a group of militia types um, were hatching a plan to abduct and possibly, you know, put her on trial and potentially execute her uh, for these alleged crimes. Um, in addition to that, it has become clear that, and again, only picking on them because they are the party in power, um, many members of the Republican Party uh, have taken you know, drastic, uh, drastic measures uh, within their own right on things and are, are no longer even hiding it you know, or, or trying to keep it on the down low. Um, I have another clip to play, and this one is from Senator Lindsey Graham, uh, Republican of South Carolina. And um, this is also from the judiciary hearings. Uh, Lindsey Graham serves as the chairman of the Judiciary Committee, as he is a Republican. And, you know, it, it just plays into this narrative of, you know, giving the wink and the nod and the okie doke to this, you know, un-American um, um, racist behavior, you know, the attitudes that we see out there. So I'm going to play this clip and then we'll come back and talk some more about it. So you've been asked a lot, lot about Roe v. Wade and, and Casey, and one of the differences between Brown versus Board of Education and row line of cases is there's active litigation regarding row. Is that correct? That, that is correct. I think Senator Hirano named eight or nine different cases that may come up to the court, cases in controversy. And one of the reasons you can't tell us how you would rule is because there's active litigation coming to the court. Is that correct? That is correct. And one of the reasons you can say with confidence that you think Brown versus Board of Education is super precedent is that you're not aware of any effort to go back to the good old days of segregation by a legislative body. Is that correct? That is correct. And I've also said that in lectures that Brown was correct as an original matter. So that is the kind of thing, since I've said it in writing, I felt like I could express before the committee. So, again, that was Senator Lindsey Graham, who is the chairman of the, of the Senate Judiciary Committee. And the other voice you heard, that was um, Judge Amy Coney Barrett, who was answering his questions. Uh, the key point right in the middle of that clip is he, he referred to, you know, the, quote, good old days of segregation, close quote. And, you know, obviously that, you know, created an immediate 
firestorm in, in the media and social media. And I, I, I play that to illustrate something that, that we're seeing. It's, you know, and, and, and people were quick to say, oh, you know, he was kidding. You know, he himself said, you know, three days later, um, that he was being sarcastic and, you know, that, you know, it, he, he didn't mean those words and so forth. And I counter that with this. Um, all of us have from time to time uh, said something that a- a- as soon as it left our mouth, we were like, oh, God, I shouldn't have said that. Usually we will turn around and correct it right then, right there. And we are not trained orators. We are not people who speak, give speeches, give lectures, or even when we're making, you know, comments off the cuff um, or, or freewheeling. The, the statement was made, the statement was put out there. Uh, Senator Graham didn't say anything to uh, retract it or address it or, you know, apologize for it for three days. Um, and yet, you know, it, it just was out there. And it points to what I was saying in that we are in this atmosphere of because we can, as as Senator Whitehouse said in the earlier clip, that I just I got away with it. You know, nobody caught it. Nobody said anything. No harm, no foul. And it just plays into this narrative um, of of where we are right now that is really just not acceptable. So, you know, a, a polished speaker should know better than, you know, to, to just say an off-the-cuff statement like that. And that wasn't the only um, questionable statement that Senator Graham has made. He's been quoted in the media uh, as saying in, in discussions about, you know, some of the, the racial problems in his state in South Carolina that, and, and his reply, uh, among other things, was, and I quote, Blacks can go anywhere in South Carolina as long as you're conservative, not liberal. Again, and you know, just poking a stick in, into an already heated situation, you know, just is is unacceptable. And you know, we as the people who elect these uh, officials into office need to hold them to account for it. And if they continue to insult us in, in, in broad general terms, then, you know, we need to vote them out of office and, and say, no, you're not going to talk to us. That's not why we sent us, sent you to your job. So, um, again, more food for thought, things that, you know, we need to make sure that we're paying attention to, that we don't let go by the boards, that we do hold our elected officials uh, accountable for their, their actions and their words. Uh, as we go forward. All right, so let's um, let's change gears uh, a little bit. And I wanted to bring into the conversation uh, a discussion on something that came out from Ice Cube. And you've probably heard about it. Ice Cube is, of course, um, an actor, uh, a rapper, musician, uh, and an activist. He's uh, been 
very outspoken over the years uh, on the conditions that are being faced by black America in this country. And he introduced uh, just within the last week or so uh, something called the Contract with Black America. Uh, yeah, and I will post a link to the full text of the document. It's about 22 pages long, um, but it is an extremely uh, well thought out and you know insightful assessment of the problems that are faced by black people in this country and an action plan or at least a framework for the action plan to address them you know, at, at the federal, state, and local level. And I, I won't read the whole document. As I said, it's about 22 pages long. But I will go through and give you the, the 13 key points that are contained in the document. And, you know, point number one, uh, a bill to guarantee black opportunity and representation. And here he's calling for adopting a plan of what's called, quote, neo-reconstruction to redress past wrongs systematically imposed on black Americans economically through many generations that has resulted in a wealth gap where the average white family has 10 times the wealth of a black family. Uh, in addition to some of the economic initiatives listed, uh, it also calls for a formal apology to black Americans uh, for past discrimination and slavery. Additionally, black opportunity and representation to include affirmative action in schools, public and private, per student funding, uh, civil rights classes being taught at uh, elementary school levels, gerrymandering reform, additional polling places in black and minority neighborhoods, and a, a, a demand to make Juneteenth, Juneteenth a federal holiday. Uh, second point is a bank lending reform, and basically that bank lending would be regulated to require banks to lend a percentage of all loan and credit categories on an equal basis to the black population each bank serves. Uh, however, the minimum threshold, and he calls for this in several points in the document, uh, tying it to the national black population currently at about 13.4%. Uh, the third is a, an adoption of a federal funding of so-called, quote, baby bonds. Uh, this was an idea that's been posed by a few people, including uh, current Senator Cory Booker and Representative Ayanna Presley, uh, with a $1,000 contribution at birth to uh, those babies that are born into lower wealth families. Uh, and they would receive additional contributions each year up to a total of 46500 And the recommendation calls for restrictions to using the money to asset-enhancing actions such as buying homes, starting businesses, and funding education. Uh, a Federal Reserve and government pensions for qualified black Americans, the Federal Reserve to allow one-time interest-free loan for home ownership. Uh, finance oversight, point number five, a banking commission or even a cabinet or subcabinet post would be set up to overlook and report on black and minority lending, housing, home ownership and mortgages and enforcements of items two and three above. Uh, number six, personal data and credit. Most states publicly release bulk data about arrestees unchecked. 
like the 1970 Fair Credit Reporting Act, uh, these, there must be guidelines regarding arrest records that allow similar privacy and accuracy protections and the right to dispute or correct inaccurate data. Number seven, prison reform. Privately run prisons would be abolished. Prison labor disallowed without consent and nonviolent offenders incarcerated for 10 years or longer will be freed if good behavior standards are met. Judicial reforms, number eight, eliminate mandatory minimums and the three strike laws. Civil Rights Division of the Department of Justice would be reformed to stricter guidelines and greater oversight over police departments. Uh, number nine, Police Reform Act. Police reforms will be implemented in an expansive act that will at a minimum include elimination of qualified immunity, requirement of mandatory malpractice uh, insurance for police officers, uh, make municipalities liable for unconstitutional uh, actions by police, mandatory use of dashboard and body cams, elimination of chokeholds and no-knock warrants, uh, establishment of residency requirements, uh, and there's more. Uh, number 10. FCC licensing of public airwaves. And here uh, it's calling for the broadcast networks would be required to air black produced content equal to 20% of the total content on the network as measured by time. So that means 20% 20 20 of the broadcast hours each day would need to provide black content. Number 11, Confederate monuments and institutions. Uh, here he's calling for elimination of all Confederate statues and uses or displays of Confederate flags on government grounds or property with public access. Rename all streets, schools, public structures, etc. named after Confederate soldiers or leaders. A memorial will be built in Washington, D.C. to uh, victims of police excessive force. And he's not uh, calling for the destruction of the statues, but rather placing them into you know, designated education uh, facilities and so forth where they can be used as part of a you know training on the uh, history of the United States. Um, the AJP program for education and jobs. Adoption of AJP, a public-private program that provides access to jobs and education and or training for people willing to put in the work and commitment. And number 13, uh, and this one is is a critical one actually uh, black responsibility and here he's calling for the black community to own up and step up to what it needs to do in order to improve its own uh, conditions here in the United States uh, and he says chronic poverty creates an atmosphere full of negativity frustration hopelessness depression alcoholism, drug abuse, crime, and violence. These are some of the conditions that plague the black community, which is dealing with extreme generational poverty. As we begin to gain social and economic equality, it is our duty to clean up ourselves and our community. So he's calling on the contract to be a two-way street in that there are expectations being made of our federal, state, and local uh, government but there are also standards and requirements and accountabilities that the black community needs to be held to as well. So, as I said, that was a very quick, very brief overview of it. I will post the link to the full text of the document on my Facebook page, uh, Fired Up Radio uh, on Facebook, and I will also post the link out via my Twitter account. So, you know, overall, um, 
my impression and I read the entire document, you know, in in detail. And I I think it is a a great fr- uh, framework and structure. Uh, I, I think it is comprehensive. I think a lot of the elements and especially, you know, d- don't just go by the overview I just gave you. Go read the document. And it, it is, you know, a, a detailed uh, framework for how this contract uh, could be put in place and executed. And, you know, I, I, there is one criticism, um, you know, among you know, critics of this this contract uh, that are out there that I think um, holds some water and and is relevant other than, you know, just, uh, you know, knee jerk reaction in that there there is a decided lack, at least in this framework, more may come in the future, but at least for what we see right now, it does not go you know, far enough or it does not address in, in a substantive way the issues faced by black women in this country, which, you know, is, is at, not even as a subset of the issues faced by the black community, but it is a very central part of the, the problems that we face in that, you know, black women are, are treated, you know, very badly across the board. And this plan um, has nothing in it as of yet that seems to address any of those issues in any kind of the detail that he has addressed some of the financial, educational, social, and political elements of, of his plan. But again, you know, all in all with that one little little caveat, uh, I think this is, is a good plan. I think there's a lot here to lead discussion and you know we can uh, look at it some more. Uh, I will you know look and comparison and contrast it with uh, the plans for Black America that both uh, President Trump has has put out and that Senator Biden has put out as well. I will address those uh, on my Facebook page with, with my thoughts there, and then we'll follow up with them on next week's show as we are just about out of time here on this week. You know, these hours go by really quickly, everybody. So some food for thought there. Um, I urge you, go to my Facebook page, you know, facebook.com forward slash fired up radio, grab the link, uh, download the document, it's a PDF, and you can read it or even plug it into your, your audio book programs. Most of them will play a PDF document and let it read it to you. Uh, but definitely take a look at it. Uh, it speaks to a lot of the issues that we are facing at the political level here in this country. So, you know, it's just some very good food for thought. And lastly, again, we're 15 days out from the national election. If you've already voted early, thank you and kudos. If you have not yet voted, get out and vote. Get your, your mail-in ballot if you've received it. Um, you know, deadlines are pretty much uh, running down to the wire. So, you know, you may still have to go out in person and vote. Please do that. Uh, mask up, protect yourself, but in and any way you can, get your vote in and count it. It's vitally important. That's going to do it. So, everybody, please take care. Please stay safe. Uh, reach out to the show. Our email address is fired up radio 
at yahoo.com. Send me your thoughts and comments. Check in with our Facebook page. Uh, like and subscribe it. And I will talk to you all again in seven days. message wherever you stand I'm calling every woman calling every man we're the generation we can't afford to wait the future started yesterday and we're already late